I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting. From left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative dictated by those in power. I won't ever trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where patrons get early access to episodes as well as select content. You can also support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And don't forget to also click the follow button so you don't miss any new episodes. You can subscribe to The Same Drugs on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives, as well as Sex Trafficking, Inside the Business of Modern Slavery. Hello, thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I'm so appreciative of your work. I think it's incredible. It's incredibly brave, and I feel like there's very few people doing it. So I'm, I'm grateful to you for that, for sure. Oh, thanks for uh, having me on, and I look forward to our conversation. So tell me a bit. I mean, I've, I've read two of your books, one on, on sex trafficking. Um, and then recently I actually listened to, to your book on the, the cobalt mines, um, in the Congo and both are really, you know, they're really dark subjects. Um, they're really, they're really hard to think about, which is probably in part why so many don't think about it very much. Um, I'm curious to know what drew you to these subjects in the first place. Yeah, I, you know, it's hard uh, to imagine, but I've been doing research on various forms of modern day slavery and child labor and human trafficking for more than two decades now. Um, going back to the, uh, my first research trip in the summer of 2000, and it was kind of a winding journey into that subject, um, it's certainly not what I thought I would be doing when I was a high schooler or even a, a, in college, uh, but it was a college experience that laid the foundation for this journey. Um, 
I, I went to undergrad at Duke University and uh, put together a project there um, in the early 90s to volunteer in a refugee camp in the former Yugoslavia, which at the time was undergoing a great deal of violence um, uh, and horror. And I felt I just needed to go and try to contribute in some way. And um, so I put together this project and spent the summer uh, in, in a Bosnian refugee camp and immediately realized I was completely in over my head. I was ill-equipped to handle uh, any uh, anything that was going on other than the one thing uh, that I could do by virtue of being there, which was listen. And I listened to stories, um, horror stories of, um, of genocide and and and. And there was a certain uh, uh, tale that kept recurring, and that's what stuck with me and, and eventually put me on this journey, um, which is stories of Serbian soldiers who would go into Bosnian villages, execute the men, and then round up women and girls and take them to rape camps uh, 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 and traffic them uh, across the Balkan region. And um, some years later, I never really fully processed those stories. I was kind of young at the time, didn't even understand what was, what I was being told. Uh, but that laid the foundation for my desire to investigate more uh, into the world of human trafficking, and, and um, which I started in 2000. And that from there, it just, the journey continues. What is human trafficking? I asked this question not to, you know, not to assume that everyone doesn't know, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what trafficking is. I think that when we say trafficking, people are imagining physical kidnapping, for example, and then forced slavery, which is, you know, it is forced slavery, but it, it looks different in different circumstances and sex trafficking happens, you know, it's, it's more, it's almost more subtle than that often. Yeah, I, here's what human trafficking is not. It's not what you see in a Hollywood movie, for sure. Um, that's kind of the sensationalized version of it. Uh, here, the way to think about it is like this. Um, if you recruit, um, harbor, transfer a person um, uh, through, through some kind of force, fraud, or coercion, you know, some deceptive means or coercive means into a condition of forced labor or forced service uh, of some kind. And that, that's what human trafficking is. And, and, and there, there are international definitions that sort of encapsulate those elements of recruiting uh, the fraud or coercion and then the forced labor or forced service, whatever it might be. Uh, so the Atlantic slave trade was, you know, the most ambitious, audacious, multi-century human trafficking operation in, in history. I mean, it, it was exactly that, um, uh, coercively acquiring and transporting people from Africa across the Atlantic into forced labor and slavery. Uh, but that kind of exploitation continues to this day. Now, it could be that some poor person in a village in a rural area is recruited and brought to a, the, a big city and then forced to work in a restaurant or a hotel or a brothel. Um, without pay and under threat of violence, or they could be transported halfway around the world. Um, uh, but you have to have the output, the outcome. The It's very rarely, you know, grabbing someone off the street, throwing them in the back of a truck and driving off with them. It's more often uh, a simple offer to uh, migrate 
or to have a job opportunity in another country because there are so many poor people, grindingly poor people and disadvantaged people around the world that the, the, the mere possibility of going to another country to work and being promised certain wages is enough um, uh, inducement for, for them to say yes, and, and then the trafficker has them. Mm. And when you began your research on sex trafficking, where did that take you? Uh, a lot of dark places uh, is the short answer. Uh, the long answer is dozens of countries around the world where I saw um, the same theme play out again and again and again, even if it were countries separated by 10,000 miles and completely different cultures and different circumstances. And that theme was, and it's the enduring theme of slavery writ large, that theme was that women and girls by the hundreds of millions live in worlds that are utterly disadvantageous, in fact, hostile. Uh, they're subjected to violence, oppression, lack of rights, lack of opportunities, lack of education. Um, and uh, waves of gender-based violence for which there's, there's no recourse. And that's the stepping stone into forced prostitution. So if you're living in a world where you are subjected to gender-based violence on a daily basis, or you're in a war zone and gender-based violence is being used as a tool of terror, an act of war, you're desperate to get out of there. If you live in a place where you can't go to school, you never got an education, uh, you're married off, you're uh, uh, being beaten every day, whatever it is, there's there's so many forces of violence um, uh, that hundreds of millions of women and girls have to face each and every day. And traffickers prey on that. They know that there are so many desperate, poor, disadvantaged, oppressed uh, people who are um, easy pickings to say, well, I can get you, you know, working and you can stand on your own two feet um, in this country over here where you'll have rights and you, you, you can, you can make it on. And, and then the, you know, the trafficker has them. Um, uh, so women and girls, especially because of a lack of education, are so heavily disadvantaged in so many parts of the world. And so I saw that in Albania, Nepal, Moldova, Mexico, Bangladesh, Brazil. I mean, wherever I went, that same theme kept playing itself out. And I considered myself a fairly educated person, fairly, um, you know, well-read and uh, had, had some sense of the world, but I, I just, I never understood until I went from one country to another, how enormously disadvantageous female gender is for mm. most women and girls around the world. Yeah. And I think that when people in the West think about sex trafficking, which I don't think they do very often, I think when they do, they think about places like Africa and India. Um, I don't think people realize how big the problem of sex trafficking is in Europe. And I certainly don't think that they realize what's happening right like in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, it, you know, it's not just a poor country problem. Um, of course, it is that because that's where women and girls face the most severe disadvantages. 
Um, but there are vulnerable uh, women and girls in Western Europe, in North America, US and Canada. Um, uh, one of the things I found doing research in the United States, uh, for instance, was the foster care system was an on-ramp mm -hmm. into trafficking for forced prostitution. Um, I mean, there's if they weren't being recruited while they were in the system, because of course the system, you know, it's there, it's, it's better that there's a foster care system than not, but it has so many problems and it's so unpalatable for so many young girls. They, they were recruited out of it. But the big thing was the minute you age out, because, you know, that day comes, usually it's on your 18th birthday. Uh, the minute you age out, suddenly in, in most states in, in the United States and in, and in most uh, countries in the West, uh, the protections, the rights, it's gone. And you're kind of on your own. And technically, you're supposed to have a transition period and the caseworker and all of these things that sort of transition you. But oftentimes, it's overworked caseworkers who have 500 cases for eight hours in the day, and they can't keep track. And so suddenly, you don't have a place to live. You probably don't have a job. Uh, and traffickers were there. They're, they're Johnny on the spot. You know, one of the things I, I tell people is, Whenever there's a catastrophe, a crisis, war, environmental disaster, or someone ages out of foster care, whatever it is that, that is that uh, pivot to vulnerability, the first responder is traffickers. Mm. Uh, because they know, you know, they know that they can, uh, it's a numbers game for them. They can approach 10 and get two. And, you know, 100 means 20 and 1,000 means 200. And that's all you need to run a business. And why can't these girls leave? Um, one of the one of the mantras that I hear a lot um, in in Canada and in America is that women in prostitution are making a choice, and they say women, not talking about the fact that, as I understand it, most most females enter into the sex trade as girls, as minors. Um, you know, they talk about making a choice and say, you know, well, if they don't want to be there, they can leave and let adults, let consenting adults do their thing. But I, I don't think that's really representative of what's going on. Yeah, you know, choice uh, means different things in different contexts. You know, you and I, when we experience the idea of choice, it's probably from the standpoint of a empowered, safe, secure position. Do I want to do this or that? Mm -hmm. um, for many people in the world, uh, choice doesn't exist at all. So, you know, when you have this idea of, you know, the voluntary uh, entry into commercial sexual activity, uh, and I'm not saying that doesn't exist, um, but what gets overlooked often is the the history that came before that quote unquote voluntary entry. It could be one of um, childhood abuse, uh, poverty, uh, other forms of oppression and suffering and violence uh, that make it maybe not so much a choice. And the other thing that people lose track of, and we're talking about the West here. I mean, when, you, when you're in grindingly poor parts of the world where you're subjected to daily violence without consequence, uh, it's not a choice at all, at all. It's a desperate, uh, flight into another, uh, you know, from the alligator's jaws into the shark's mouth. 
But the other thing that gets overlooked when we're talking about Western countries is the age of entry. So if you encounter a 25-year-old who says, you know, I'm doing this by choice. Uh, it's, it's the lifestyle I have. It's a good whatever. If it started when that person was 14 and that's all they knew, you know, and, and, and under most laws, that means from the age of 14 until 17 years, 364 days, they, it was statutory rape, right? I mean, thousands and thousands of them by that point. And then you turn 18 and it's a choice. So was it? Was it ever really? Was there ever a real choice there? And that's what that's what people lose track of is that that age of entry component, because for most it's as a minor. Yeah. And I think there's a general uh, well-reasoned uh, understanding that, you know, under 18, and you can quibble whether it should be 18 or 17, and some people mature more quickly than others, whatever. But you draw a line in the sand and say, under a certain age, that's not a choice. Um, and if, if most people are entering as 14 or 13 or 15-year-olds, and then eight years later, you know, they encounter the system, whether it's a police officer or an NGO worker, and they say it's a choice, okay, maybe it is that day, but if it started... 10 years earlier, I, you know, it, it's hard to see that it was ever really a choice. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously this kind of exploitation, um, sex trafficking, I want to talk about the cobalt mine situation, the horrific exploitation that's happening there also. But, you know, in terms specifically of sex trafficking, you know, like it's a multi-billion dollar global industry. And it's yeah. it's actually like it's easy money. I mean, you you write about this, of course. Like it's like a, a trafficker can just make money over and over and over and over again from exploiting the same girl or woman. Like it's so easy. It's it's the most profitable form of slavery in the history of slavery. Mm. Uh because it's an enormous global business. And yes, a driving factor of the economics is that you can sell the same human body 5,000 times. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all, it's all profit generating transactions. Um, uh, and that's what makes it so enormously profitable. But what's, what's the implied uh, reality? Uh, in that entire system is, well, it's only possible because there's someone willing to buy it, buy that person 5,000 times. And, and that's the other part of this that gets overlooked is, you know, for any market to exist, you, you have to have supply, you have to have demand. Yeah. And so we know that there's a supply of millions upon millions of vulnerable, poor, oftentimes completely uh, uneducated, impoverished uh, uh, a population of women and girls, primarily. That, that's the supply. It's an ever-ready supply for traffickers. But there's the demand side, too. And that's this entire culture of, you know, money gives me the right to buy someone. And that's as old as human civilization. That I'm, I now somehow have um, purchased a right of ownership for a period of time over this other person, right? And that's that's slavery yeah. for millennia. 
And whether it was the old world Atlantic slave trade where you bought the slave at auction and owned them for their lifetime, or you walk into some uh, brothel in Bangkok or uh, you know off-strip club in Vegas or wherever, and you buy someone for an hour, the mindset is, this is my property now for that hour mm-hmm. or that day or whatever. I can do what I want. So that entire multi-billion dollar global business um, of, of, of commercial sex functions because we have accepted the idea that money gives me a right of ownership over someone to do what I want. And in this case, we know what that means. And it is often um, uh, almost always involves violence and degradation, you know, because that's what ownership means, right? I can do what I want. So, uh, that that's another part of this entire global phenomenon that has to be addressed that we have to get past this idea. I mean, it was written down on paper some time ago that we're supposed to be past this idea that you can buy someone and that gives you a right of ownership over them for some period of time. And, and we're still not past that, unfortunately. And, you know, you you would think, you would assume that sex trafficking is illegal in this day and age. And yet... It's, as we've just discussed, this massive, massive industry and it's growing bigger and bigger. I mean, what have you encountered any kinds of legal models, legislative models, um, any kind of approach that could curb that demand that could sort of at least I mean, the idea of stopping the entire industry is very idealistic, of course, but, you know, like make you know, make it smaller? Well, for, let's, let's first acknowledge that the policy debates in this area are very emotional, very heated, very mm-hmm. ideologically driven. And um, there is generally not agreement on what's the right approach. And it comes back to this idea of choice. If there's such a thing as as choosing to do this, that should be preserved. That's a right. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do, what choices I can and can't make, and so on. Mm. But if you if you adopt the premise that invariably, maybe not, but at the time, it wasn't a choice for some reason, because it started at 14, or there was a history of childhood abuse, whatever it is, um, then that's not a that's not a right that needs to be protected. In fact, you need to protect against that. And there's a lot of debate and disagreement about that. But to answer your question, I'd say the most promising model out there is the one that that hones in on this demand side that we talked about. Uh, it's been called the Nordic model, uh, the demand abolition model, and the idea is okay. If we if we make commercial sex illegal, the first thing that happens is police target the women and girls on the on the street corner because they're they're easy pickings and they just get further persecuted and prosecuted and punished. And so that's not the right approach. Why aren't we focusing on these guys rolling up with their cash, adopting this mindset that that gives them a right of ownership over another person? Isn't that what we should be targeting? The demand mm-hmm. side of the equation. Uh, and so there, it started in Sweden and kind of spread across the Nordic countries. And now, believe it or not, France 
France, Ireland, other places have adopted a similar model, which is we're not going to we're not going to worry about the women and girls side of this. Um, we're going to focus on these men who think it's OK to go buy women and girls or boys and children and whatever, anybody, any human being. That that's an acceptable transaction uh, and we're going to punish them so that if you get caught trying to buy another person, you get a fine. Uh, you may get named and shamed. You may get some prison time. You may get your car impounded. I mean, an array of deterrent kind of punishments. And although people uh, still debate whether this is effective or not, there's a lot of research out there that shows it does have a pretty strong deterrent effect on the demand side, which then disrupts the market. Uh, it's not a perfect solution, but in terms of taking policies that don't further punish those already being punished and focus on those who are coming to this transaction, this interaction from the standpoint of um, entitlement uh, and money gives uh, uh, ownership, uh, maybe that's the right way to think about it. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I've been an advocate of the Nordic model for a long time now, um, and not very many people have heard of it. Usually when I talk about it, people have never heard of it before. And we, you know, there was a lot of women that fought for Canada to actually adopt a version of the Nordic model with some success. Um, it's not being you know, like we technically have the law technically paying for sex in Canada is illegal. Um, but it's not enforced in all the provinces. Justin Trudeau has been under a lot of pressure from uh, pro legalization activists mm -hmm. to repeal that law. So we may be in for another fight, but, but yeah, I'm glad that you found that model to be successful from what I have heard. It has been successful in, in Sweden, for example. Yeah. Um, and oh, it, there's, you know, people, I, I think there's, there's no, it's the, it's the most promising policy approach because if you, if you put on a policy cap for a moment, you think you have to make choices as a policymaker. You cannot protect everyone's rights equally. You have to make choices. Okay. I mean, like the gun ownership debate in the United States. Children should be protected from being shot up at school. That's that's a right, you know, that we should protect. Yep. Uh, and then there's a bunch of people who say, no, my my right to have that gun has to be protected at all costs, right? I mean, those are and those are competing rights, uh, and you have to make policy choices. So with this one, there's a policy choice: Do we protect the right of the, by and large, theoretical, but possibly uh, it exists. Uh, person who wants to make this empowered choice, don't tell me what to do with with my my body, um, or protect the rights of the vulnerable who are invariably because they started at fourteen or they've been trafficked from a poor country or they're subjected to violence, um, find themselves in this world where they're being repeatedly uh, abused. Uh, and so you have to make a choice as a policymaker. And uh, for me, protect the vulnerable. If you have to make a choice between protecting the empowered voluntary choice maker and the disempowered involuntary oppressed person, you choose the latter. Uh, now, what's the right way to go about that? I think it's the demand model. Uh, I think it's the most promising. I think it has the most positive 
um, results and there's some good data around it, um, uh, uh, others quibble and they will probably quibble uh, as long as the earth is spinning. Um, but, you know, Sweden and, and its neighbors have some some reasonable results to show the world that this is this is the right approach. Yeah. So and, you know, another issue that I like I had not you know, I don't like to admit this, but it's true. I didn't know what was happening in these cobalt mines at all until I heard you on Rogan. Um, and when I tell people what's going on, they don't believe me. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I guess I get that in a way, like it is really hard to believe. And the companies will say that what they're doing is ethical or that they're using clean cobalt or whatever. Um, but before we get into that, I mean, how did you find out what was going on? Well, I, I had no idea myself. You know, mm. it's it's tucked away. You know, yeah. it's conveniently and neatly tucked away by design. Uh, the heart of the African continent is not a place where there's a lot of light shining. You know, it's it, it's a dark, violent uh, out of sight, out of mind place. And it has been for much of human history. Um, but people were onto this, you know, some years ago. And I can, I remember very distinctly, um, being in Boston, uh, and one of my colleagues, uh, who's from, uh, Congo said, Siddharth, something, you know, there's something going on in the cobalt mines. It's not good. It's in the batteries and you need to go and look at it because, uh, there, there's some very horrible things taking place. And I said, what do you mean? Cobalt, that's a color. You're talking about batteries. I had, I had no context at all. Um, and, and then I started looking into it and uh, I realized, oh, this is actually a very crucial battery component metal. Um, and it's all coming out of the Congo. And there was some stories from NGOs and the odd journalists that the conditions were horrific. So I thought, yeah, I do need to go uh, and see what's going on. And so I uh, uh, took a little time to um, establish some ground relationships and plan things so I could go in and do research effectively and safely. And I took that uh, my first of many trips in 2018. And, you know, Megan, so I was at that point 18 years into a journey of, of documenting slavery and child labor around the world. I'd been to probably 50 plus countries at that point. And when I say that, I mean like the underbelly of 50 plus countries uh, where, where some horrible things, dark, grim uh, things are happening. And when I got on the ground and got into my first cobalt mining area, uh, I, I was shell-shocked. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had never seen that scale and severity of human degradation and it was it was like the the clock had been dialed back two and a half centuries. Um, that the people there were being brutalized by a a broader economic order that was after their loot, and they could either be slaves and get it out of the ground or get out of the way. And the fact. I mean, I remember where I was standing as these thoughts were just swarming through my mind. And I thought, 
This is the bottom of supply uh, uh, of the supply chains that reach up to companies that are worth trillions of dollars. And they're worth trillions peddling gadgets and now cars, all of which are almost all of which have cobalt in them. And three-fourths of that world supply of cobalt is coming from places like this in the Congo, in the Congo. How can that be? I mean, this was we're in the 21st century at this point where everyone's human rights are equal and, and the global economy is supposed to be protecting the, the bottom of the supply chain. And you hear these statements from companies and CEOs that they they, they uh, ensure that the human rights of everyone in their supply chain are protected and everything's done sustainably. And of course, I believe it. We all believe it. And then you get on the bottom, bottom of those supply, you get in the ground in the Congo and you realize none of it's true. In fact, what's happening is is just the latest chapter of 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 colonialism. And that um, the reason this has become now f five years later, the, the the primary preoccupation for me and why I wrote Cobalt Red and tried to get these the voices of these people out into the world is there has never been in the history of slavery or colonialism an instance where there was greater degradation of, of people at the bottom of a chain that generated more profit at the top of the chain and touched the lives of more people around the world. As you and I, Megan, and everyone listening to us right now, cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Our lives are utterly dependent on cobalt and it's all being scrounged out of the ground by kids, by mothers with babies on their backs, by grindingly poor families for a dollar or two a day, fed up to companies that project themselves as ethical and good stewards of humanity and the environment. And it's all built on this hypocrisy. And uh, the world, people don't know. I didn't know. Um, if you walk down the street and talk to people, most people won't know, but that's changing now and it has to keep changing because it's an enormous injustice that needs to be set right. And tell us what you saw when you got to the Congo. What is actually happening in these mines? How does this work? So there are... If you look at a map in, in, this, in the southeastern part of the Congo, right along the Zambian border, um, there's a little arc from a town called Lubumbashi to Kolowezi. It's a little crescent that's about 400 kilometers by 80 kilometers. And that little crescent of Earth holds more reserves of cobalt than the rest of the planet combined. And as a consequence of this scramble to get everyone driving EVs and to get everyone upgrading their phones and gadgets each and every year, they can't get the cobalt out of the ground quickly enough. So that part of the Congo, when you ask, what is it like? What do you see? It's been completely obliterated. The earth has been ripped, gouged, torn apart, millions of trees, clear cut, enormous giant open pit mine craters. I mean, you can see them from space. Wow. 10, 20, 30 square kilometers in size. And there are hundreds of them. And 
all these mines dumping toxic effluents into the air, into the water. So the whole countryside's been contaminated. Mines that are the size of cities, just countryside obliterated. And then you have hundreds of thousands of people digging with their hands, with pickaxes, with strips of rebar, families, mother, father, three kids, as young as six or seven, all of them scrounging because of this fever at the top of the chain to get cobalt in the batteries. And they can't get it out of the ground quickly enough. So there's this ready-made slave labor force because they're so poor and they've all been displaced by these huge mines that take entire swaths of countryside, kick everybody out, and now they're living on the fringes in, in shacks and huts. Uh, and the only way to survive is to fill a stack or two of cobalt a day. So you'll have young children in trenches and pits, caked and toxic filth, because cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe. You have mothers, young mothers, their babies strapped to their backs, hacking at the ground, all this toxic dust coming up into their lungs, into their baby's lungs. You have an entire part of the planet that's been destroyed in order to facilitate our green transition. And that's the story that doesn't, that doesn't emerge. Yeah. And wait a minute. This push to have EV mandates and uh, transition uh, to electric vehicle fleets uh, in order to save the environment. Nope. The earth for our children and grandchildren. But how can it come at the cost of destroying their part of the planet? Does, does Africa not count? Do their trees not count the same as ours? Is their water not the same as our water? And how is it that we're charging so fast forward um, with this transition to EVs that no one's stopping to to see, are we trampling on other members of humanity along the way? And that's exactly what's happening. And that's what you see on the ground. It's plain as day. It's right there for anyone to see. Uh, and, and now with Cobalt Red out in the world, you can hear the voices of those people in the Congo telling you directly. Uh, it doesn't have to be me. Shouldn't be anyone else acting as an intermediary. The point of my book was there are people here who are looking at an apocalypse that we've caused them to suffer and they're screaming and no one's listening. And yet we all rely on them every day. So it's, so we need to hear what they have to say. And that's, that's the point of the book. Uh, and hopefully uh, it will lead to policymakers and consumers just taking a beat um, and sorting out and setting right the bottom of the chain rather than just charging forward and not paying attention to the consequence of the people uh, in the Congo. It's like, it's so hard to hear. It's like, it's so big and it's so upsetting. And I mean, do these companies know what's going on? Like these EV companies, Apple, I mean, what, tell me about all the products. I mean, we know about EVs, computers, phones, I mean, so look, first of all, they all know. Yeah. I mean, it's like this. If they don't know, 
then that is the manifestation of such a severe degree of criminal negligence and ignorance that they should all be fired. Every director, <laughs> CEO should all be fired. If they don't know that there's a, there's a precious segment of humanity that's being obliterated every time they hawk their phones and cars at the bottom of their supply chain, if they're not aware of that, then they should all be fired for uh, for negligence. and Or they should just get down into the pits themselves and start digging the cobalt with their own hands. So they all know. Um, you have cobalt in the batteries of pretty much every smartphone, every tablet, every laptop, every e-scooter, e-bike, rechargeable, anything probably has cobalt in the battery. And, but the real demand is coming from EVs because an EV battery can require up to 10 plus kilograms of refined cobalt, which is a thousand times as much as you'd have in a smartphone. Now, in order to meet, you know, uh, COP26, COP27 um, uh, mandates on, numbers of EVs that should be on the road. We're talking hundreds of millions of new EVs on the road by the year 2035, 2050, hundreds mm -hmm. of millions. Mm -hmm. Each of them requiring five, 10, 11 kilograms of refined cobalt. And it all is coming out of Congo. So when I said that there's this fever, there's this scramble that you can't get cobalt out of the ground quickly enough, and that's, that requires this entire population of people to scrimp and scrounge and, and put themselves in enormous hazard and risk for a dollar or two a day to get that cobalt up and into the batteries. And the companies all know. They know. They just... Here's the thing. The fact that they haven't, none of them, gotten on the ground at the bottom of their supply chains and ensured that the statements they make about protecting human rights in their supply chains, and they all say down to the mining level, they all say down to the mining level. The fact that none of these companies have done nearly enough to actually achieve the things they say they're doing means those people over there don't count Yeah, to them. And so when I said we dialed the clock back two and a half centuries, that was slave trade logic. That was colonial thinking. Oh, these people are savages. They don't count. Their nature is to be enslaved. I mean, th that's what people said two and a half centuries ago. And now you have CEOs worth billions, companies worth trillions, all relying on these people and treating them like a brute labor force, same, same mindset. They don't count the same. You wouldn't see anybody in Cupertino sending their kids into toxic pits to dig for minerals for a dollar a day, but it's okay to send the kids of the Congo. Right. And that's what has to be, that has to be set right. And we have to, we have to come to terms with, the realities that are implicit in that dynamic, that those people over there still don't count. Uh, and when they die, it doesn't count. When they scream, we don't hear. But if we make plenty of money off of them and their resources, it's under their feet, 
so it's their resources, um, then everything's okay. What excuses did these companies come up with when pressed on this? It, they, they all point their finger downstream. So, uh, you know, an Apple or a Tesla will say, oh, it's up to the battery company. The battery company will say it's up to the mining company. The mining company will say it's up to some. So everyone's pointing their finger downstream uh, until the last finger is pointed at an eight-year-old boy <laughs> up to here in toxic grit with a sack of cobalt earning 50 cents so he can eat. And no one's accepting responsibility for that child. And the simple premise is this. Demand for that mineral in that boy's sack starts at the top of the chain. And that's where responsibility has to sit. There, there are bad actors all the way down at every level. But the entire chain of interest, the entire chain of negative causality only exists because Apple, Tesla, Google, Samsung, Microsoft, on down the list, Daimler, Ford, GM, Tesla, everyone. That whole chain of negative outcomes only exists because of their express demand for the cobalt under that kid's feet. And so it's their responsibility to make sure that that child is in school and his parents are being paid a decent wage and have safety equipment so they're not being contaminated every day. And simple things. Mm -hmm. It would be a rounding error on their balance sheets in terms of resources required to actually eliminate almost all the harm being caused to the people of the Congo. And so you have to return to that same premise. Well, why aren't they doing it? Yeah, why not pay higher wages at least? At they least. Wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice. Look, these people make $2 a day. If you paid them $10 a day, they'd have food, clothes, and they could keep their children in school. Mm -hmm. And we're only talking about a few hundred thousand people. Are you telling me those companies collectively would even notice the difference between a wage of 2 and $10 for a few? They make that in a day. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's meaningless money to them, but it's it means everything to the people in the Congo. Yeah, it's disgusting. And, you know, the fact that, you know, EVs in particular are framed as this like ethical move is just it it makes me enraged. I mean, Justin Trudeau. I think earlier this year, he announced that he was imposing an EV mandate. So by the year 2030, supposedly, I mean, I don't know if this will actually happen because it seems crazy, but this is the mandate that he imposed. 100% of new vehicles had to be EVs. And then around the same time announces that he's putting $1.5 billion into building, uh, to collaborating with Volkswagen so that they can have an EV battery factory in Ontario, um, which, you know, creating new jobs, uh, fighting climate change, so on and so forth. And this, this is the guy who's selling himself as this really progressive man. He's helping Canadians. He's helping the environment. Nothing, no, no thought about these kids or these people, not anything. No, it's all, it's all built on a lie. 
Yeah. It's all built on a hypocrisy. Uh, I have, I, there, there, there's nothing inherently wrong with bringing jobs to your community. No. With no. preserving the environment, with protecting the earth for children and grandchildren. Nothing inherently wrong in that. But when it's all built on the destruction of another set of people and the destruction of their environment, it's all a lie. It's all a hypocrisy. And, and, and that's, the, that's the injustice that has to be set right. You can't protect your part of the earth by ransacking and destroying another part of the earth. That's not reasonable thinking. It's maybe 300 years ago, it would have been a reasonable way to think. But today, you can't do that. Any, you cannot treat another set of people and their earth as if it's expendable and disposable. Uh, and that's the problem with these mandates and the, this push is it has completely ignored the cost and consequence to the people in the heart of Africa. Yeah. So, I mean, what do we do? <laughs> what can individuals do? Well, number one, have conversations like this. Mm -hmm. Keep spreading the message. Um, I'm a firm believer in the fact that big change happens through an inevitable sequence of events. The first is truth seekers bring a horror to the attention of the world. People can't change what they don't know about. So step one is bringing the truth of some horror to the attention of the world. And then that spreads, that wave of truth washes over the world. And inevitably throughout history, the next thing that happens is a community of conscience or multiple communities of conscience form, mobilize, agitate, and then drag everybody else forward with their force of will to set the injustice right. Those will be the leaders uh, who will emerge uh, to set this injustice right. And I don't know who they are yet. They're probably out there starting, agitating, forming, thinking, planning, organizing. Uh, and that will happen. But we're still at the phase of bringing this truth to the world. So continue spreading the truth. That's what people can do each and every day. I think also as, as consumers, because the entire, this entire, uh, chain of misery is driven towards consumption of products with cobalt in. So as consumers, we have choices to make. Do we need to upgrade our phone every year? Yeah. Uh, uh, we've been marketed the idea that we need to, uh, but do we really need to? Because every time you do that, you're expressing more demand. You're creating more demand and introducing more demand into the chain, which filters down to that pressure, that fever on the ground of the Congo to get the cobalt out of the ground. So do you need the new phone or gadget each and every year? I think with EVs, people have to make an individual choice. Uh, the, the sad reality is we've all been made unwitting participants in this injustice. And you and I can't fix it by ourselves, but we can make choices in the meantime. And 
if you want to buy an EV, fine, but then you have to agitate mm. and push for that chain of violence to be set right, for these injustices to be set right. Or you may say, you know what, I'm going to take a beat and wait until these companies sort out the supply chain. When policymakers decide with one hand that they're going to push for these mandates, that there should be no more gas-powered sales by the year 2030, 2040, whatever it is. And the other hand, it has to have uh, resources to ensure that the consequences of that mandate aren't violence and harm and environmental destruction in the heart of Africa. And so that means putting money on the ground, boots on the ground, resources on the ground to protect those people and ensure that the demand-side pressures created by these policies uh, don't result in enormously negative consequences for people who are already so poor and suffering so much in one of the most violent, war-torn parts uh, of the planet. So you may decide as a consumer, you know, until that happens, until I see that the bottom of the chain has been sorted, uh, I'm not going to buy an EV. If you do, fine, then you have to agitate. You've got to be an agitated consumer and say, look, I'm, I'm trying to make a good choice, but I can't plug in my car knowing that every time I do so, some kid in the Congo is dying. I mean, is are there any... Are there any ethical ways of mining cobalt currently? Is that a thing that exists? I mean, it's, <laughs> I find just the term artisanal cobalt mining really maddening because that doesn't mean what, like, that doesn't mean what it sounds like, right? No, it, it's part of the word game and the marketing puffery that uh, is meant to misdirect us to, from seeing the truth. Uh, you say you, they use this term artisanal mining in contrast to industrial mining, which means excavators and heavy machinery. And they say, well, if it's not that, then it's artisanal. And what does that mean? Like it makes you think some people are doing quaint activities or baking bread or something. It, it, it's a term that belies the reality, which is it's miserable, hazardous, dangerous, toxic labor. Um, now, cobalt is mined in a few other places. Um, uh, not much, but, you know, there's some cobalt mined in Australia and Morocco and Russia and some other countries. They pr provide 3% or so each of the world's supply. And I haven't been there to those places, but I'm sure the conditions are acceptable. Uh, they need to be acceptable in the Congo as well. A and that's a simple um, matter of, of companies at the top of the chain getting on the ground in the Congo and making sure that the people digging their cobalt out of the ground do so in conditions that are decent, safe, and dignified. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, again, I just, I can't thank you enough for your work because I think no one would know what was going on right now with cobalt mining in the Congo, if not for your book. Um, and I know that it was really hard work. I mean, I, I, I know that it was hard to get to these places, never mind to have to witness what's yeah. going on. If it, it's a dangerous part of the world, it's um, heavily militarized. Um, there are soldiers with AK-47s and machetes all over that part of the Congo, oftentimes guarding mines, keeping people out. Um, keeping minerals safe. 
ensuring that everything that's dug out of the ground by a child uh, ends up right back in the industrial mining company's pockets um, uh, and supply. Uh, so get access is very hard. It's it's difficult moving around that part of the world. It's 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 pretty dangerous. But um, the people who are putting their lives at risk are the are the Congolese people, and, and they're doing it for almost nothing but base survival income, so that you and I can live our lives. And so, yeah. bringing their voices out into the world uh, is the least responsibility. Um, uh, that I felt I had, uh, and that's the point of the book. And and I, I, as I said, I believe fundamentally that people will be moved uh, and get activated to to set this right. It, generally speaking, most of us have a conscience. Most of us are good people. We don't stand for injustice. We certainly don't want to participate in it. And when we come to learn about it, whatever we can do, I think most people will do. Right. Uh, I think that's true, and I hope that's true. So, um, I, again, for those listening, your book is Cobalt Red, of course, and how the blood of the Congo powers our lives, and you can get it on Amazon. Where else can you find that book? Pretty much uh, most online booksellers, and it's it's in bookstores as well. And, and of course, you can get the audio book if uh, you want to listen to it while uh, on a jog or on your daily commute yeah i listened to it on audible while i was cleaning while i was walking on the plane all sorts of places um it was really great to talk with you i really appreciate your time i know you're so busy so so thank you thanks a lot megan it was very nice talking with you okay take care bye-bye i'm megan murphy host of the same drugs thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, where you will get access to special content, early access to episodes, and periodic Patreon-only live streams. Plus, you can DM me to your heart's content and I will reply. You can also follow and support my work on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca or you can support this podcast directly on Spotify by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. I produce and host this podcast all by myself, and I rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. You can donate directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.